I don't know. Hey, there we are. Hi. I, I am really glad, by the way, Bill, that you, you fixed that in your prayer, that you were not, I, I am no one's savior. If, I, if you guys are looking to me to be your savior, we are all toast, and we might as well go home right now. Um, in, in fact, just to kind of show you that I am no one's savior, you'll notice on the front of the bulletin that we have a new date and a new location for our men's retreat. And that is because I was put in charge of securing said date and location of the men's retreat, and I screwed that one up. So, gentlemen, we are going on a men's retreat. It's going to just be a little bit earlier in October. Our new time is October 7th through the 9th, and we're going to be going to an Alpine Meadows, which is a wonderful place. I've never been, but I know that Bill and Jeff have, and they just speak very highly of it. So I'm really looking forward to that. If I'm hoping, I'm actually hoping that this will actually free some of you who were not able to originally go to the men's retreat to join us. That will be something that I'm really looking forward to. It is a wonderful time to get up the mountains to spend some time connecting with one another, but especially to connect with God. Just kind of get away from all of the other demands and hear God's voice. So if you have questions, you're more than welcome to talk to one of the pastors. If you want to sign up, there's a QR code that you can scan. If you're at home and you want us to send that QR code, uh, just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and we will send it to you. Another thing that some of you guys have been asking is for an update on Cooper. I mentioned last week at the beginning that my son's best friend and one of the kids in our youth group, a boy named Cooper Cannon, um, was in a car accident. He was actually riding a bike. The car didn't see him as he was crossing the street, hit him at a pretty high speed. Cooper broke his neck, and it had affected his right side to the point where at that point last week he wasn't even able to move his right leg. So just a quick update I'm grateful to say that he is able to move all of his appendages now. His right leg and his right arm moves. However, he's not out of the woods because in no way does he have strength in, on his right side. He's not able yet to make a fist with his hand. And now comes the long process of rehabilitation, physical therapy. And so if you want to know how specifically to pray for Cooper... Um, couple of things. One, our God is a divine physician, and he can, if he so chooses, give Cooper his full range of mobility back immediately. He has not seen fit to do so yet, but we can pray in that direction if that's God's will. The other thing that they are, the, the doctors are specifically saying as his new benchmark for him to shoot for is he needs to be able to do up to three hours of physical therapy a day. The thing is, it's painful for him right now. I mean, the kid has just gotten hit by a car, and he's still recovering from that. So he's able to, at this point, do about an hour's worth. So if you want to know how specifically to pray for Cooper, pray that he would be able to endure more physical therapy, that it would get easier, and that his range of motion and his mobility would come back, okay? Um, in fact, let's do that right now. If you'd bow your heads with me. Father, I am so grateful... <laughs> I'm grateful that you are the God in the valleys of the shadow of death, just as you are the God of the mountaintops. You know Cooper intimately. You know his body. You're the one who knit him together in his mother's womb. And although this has come as a shock to his family and his church family, it doesn't come as a shock to you. And I pray, Father, that you would meet Cooper in the midst of that hospital room where only his parents at this point are able to go. That you would meet him in that bed or in his wheelchair when he's moving around. And I pray that you would fill him with your presence. That even now he would know he is not alone. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do. Breathe new life into my little brother. That you would give hope 
and that you would heal in your timing, in your way, so that you get the glory, and most importantly, so that your will is done in his life. Father God, you have used far more tragic things than this to advance your kingdom purposes and to radically transform people's hearts. So we invite you to do what you will in Cooper's life and in his family's life. And would you give us wisdom to know how to hold them up? As I'm praying, I also want to lift up those in our church congregation that are going to have surgery this week. I think of Bill Purley who's having heart surgery tomorrow. I think of Kathy Nelson who's having surgery on her eye tomorrow, uh, on Tuesday. And others that I'm not even probably aware of, but you know. I pray that you would guide the physician's hands, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Uh, thinking about Cooper just reminds me of the fact that, and this should come as no shock, but we live in a broken world and we experience pain. And I know that a lot of times pastors like to or like to suggest that if you follow Jesus, he'll fix everything that ails you. And the reality is we know that that's not true. That's a Pollyanna-ish view of the world. And quite honestly, that is a, a, a twisting of the gospel to suggest something other than it suggests. In fact, Jesus, on the night that he was arrested, looked at his closest disciples, the guys who were walking most closely with him, and he said, listen, guys, I want to warn you that in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience persecution for your faith. Each of those guys would endure emotional trauma, would endure physical trauma. Many of them were martyred for their faith. He wasn't pulling his punches when he warned them. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Thankfully, he didn't stop on that very depressing note. He continued to say, but you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. And while they couldn't have possibly understood how in that moment, he was pointing forward to the cross and reminding them that what he was about to do on the cross would defang the sin and the brokenness of this sin-warped world. That what he was going to do on the cross would mean that the cancers and the COVIDs and the car accidents of our world no longer get the last word. He does, and that's good news. But the reality is we are reminded that we live in a broken world and that bad things happen to relatively good people. Hard things happen to faithful followers of Jesus Christ and those who are not following him at all. Sometimes drivers don't see a, a child on a bike and lives are irreparably altered. In this world, we do have trouble. And it leads us to feel sorrow. Sometimes it even leads us to feel despair. As we can tell from the rising numbers of people who are on uh, medication for, for depression and anxiety. For the rise, the incredible rise in divorces. And even the rise in suicides. There are many, many people who feel a lot of despair in this season of life. I do want to say, though, at the outset, that there is a difference between feeling sorrow and despair. Those are two different things. Those are not synonyms. Sorrow is something that all of us feel living in this broken, sin-warped world. Sorrow is the kind of feeling we have when something that we care about, something that matters tremendously to us, changes. Maybe it's you had in your mind what your life would look like. 
And your life doesn't look like that anymore. It has not played out the way you thought. You feel sorrow. The thing is, when you have sorrow, there's something you can turn to for consolation, something you can turn to for hope. Cooper has his family to turn to and know he's not alone. He is loved. He has his faith to turn to. When you're given that, even when you're given that, um, the doctor tells you, hey, listen, it's cancer. It's pretty far progressed. It's not inoperable. And this is going to ultimately cost you life. Even then, when our health is in question, if you have God to turn to and know, thankfully, because of the cross, even this cancer doesn't get the last word, there is consolation that softens the blow of our sorrow. Although sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. That's the hope we have. But despair is different. Despair is another level of sorrow because despair comes when you have taken something that's good, something that's important, something that matters to you, and you drag it to the center of your heart and you place it on the altar of your heart or on the throne of your heart and say, this Good thing is actually the ultimate thing. This is the most important thing in my world. And when that is shaken, and I will remind you that everything will ultimately be shaken. When that is shaken, you have nothing to turn to for consolation. When the most important thing in your world, the thing that you have built your hope upon, the thing thing that you have hung your identity upon, the thing that you have placed your future upon is shaken and you realize that it's incapable of carrying the weight of your hopes and your dreams and your expectations for life, that's when despair comes. We have been in a series for the last couple of months when we're talking about worship. And really what this leads us to is a conversation that we started last week. And the point of last week, just to kind of wrap it up, it's an important one. If you missed it, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. But the point of last week is this. Our God is the only one that is worthy of our worship. Our God is the only one that is worthy because he is God and we are not. We order our lives around him. Worship is our natural response to who he is and how he views us. We're not slaves to fear any longer. We are children of God. That's who we are. That's what he tells us we are. And out of that, we respond to him by acting like children. That is our act of worship. God is the only one worthy of worship. And when we begin to take anything else and place it on the altar of our heart and begin to worship it as opposed to him, we turn that thing into an idol and our worship becomes idolatry. And God is very clear that he is not open to sharing his worship. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. When God was establishing his covenant with his people. Initially, he was establishing his covenant with the Israelites, this small tribe of people that were really nobodies in the grand scheme of things. And he said, I am going to call you my own, and I am going to turn you into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, representing my heart to the rest of creation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, 
holding on to my hand as you reach into this sin-warped world and reflecting my heart to the world so that everyone who bears my image, which is everybody who has breath in their lungs, so that everybody would know that they are loved and that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was their intent. And as he is establishing this covenant, he gives them 10 commandments, 10 ways to preserve relationship. The first four commandments are all about preserving our relationship with God. The latter six commandments are all about preserving our relationship with one another. In other words, the 10 commandments are God's top 10 ways to help us to live out our faith as representatives of his family. You want to know what it's like to live in the family of God? This is how you do it. These are the top 10 things. And of those four commandments that preserve our relationship with God, the first two of them are all about our worship, all about where we direct our worship. Let's read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol or an image in the form of anything in heaven on earth or in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now that might sound weird to your ears, to hear God describe himself as a jealous God, especially because we in our culture tend to look at jealousy as a negative thing. And sometimes it is. But jealousy is value neutral, meaning jealousy is only inappropriate when it is used inappropriately. Take my relationship with my wife, for an instance. If I got jealous every time my wife talked to another man, that would be inappropriate because how on earth could she possibly go through life not interacting with half of the people on this planet? That would be stifling. That would communicate to her and to me that I don't trust her. But if my wife went on a date with another man and I did not feel jealous, that would be inappropriate because her heart, she has covenanted with me. She has said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for as long as we live, I am yours and you are mine and our hearts are intertwined it would be inappropriate for me not to be jealous of my wife's heart if she was romantically involved with another. Does this make sense? In the same way, God is not suggesting, I don't want you to interact with anybody else on this planet. In fact, just the opposite. His intent was that the Israelites would be his representatives to the rest of the people on the planet. But what he is saying to them is, I will not share the worship that belongs to me with another. I have covenanted with you. I have called you my own. Your response is your worship. You're following me. You're submitting to my lead. You're beginning to live out the values as citizens of the kingdom of heaven as opposed to whatever kingdom you happen to live in. That is what it looks like to worship. And I will not share your trust and your devotion and your dependence and your worship with anyone else. I don't want anybody else sitting on the throne of your heart. For God not to feel that way would be inappropriate. 
Does this make sense? The point that he's getting at is that he alone is worthy of our worship. And any time that we take anything else and we worship it, we turn that thing into an idol. And I know that in 2022, I mean, we're really, you know, we have advanced so much that we look back on those, those, those Old Testament Israelites as, as really superstitious, right? Idolatry, like their idols were little images carved out of wood and stone or precious metals. And we might just dismiss them as superstitious, as if we don't deal with that. But the reality is, you and I are just as prone to idolatry as they are. No, we may not bow down to an image of stone or metal. Ours look a little different, don't they? Ours, the things that we bow down to constantly throughout the day, we hold in our pockets. But sometimes our idols don't take the form of something that's been created. Because another thing that we might think about idolatry automatically is that it's all bad. Anything that is an idol is a bad thing. But I would suggest to you that most of the idols that we are prone to worship are actually good things that we have simply dragged out of their place into the center of our life and placed on the throne of our heart where only God belongs. We've taken good things and made them ultimate things and looked to them for our hope. And at that moment... Not only have we taken our eyes off of God and placed them onto this thing and say, you are the thing that gives me hope, thus opening ourselves to to worshiping something other than him. So not only does it damage our relationship with him, but I would suggest to you that it actually ends up damaging the very good things that are a good part of our life, but we have begun to worship. I would suggest to you that our worship ends up warping the, the things that we end up inadvertently worshiping. Let me show you what I mean by that. I don't think that there's a parent in here that does not want their children to be healthy, happy, and successful. Right? We want our kids to thrive. We want our kids to do well in life. We want our kids to be satisfied and ultimately to look back on their life and say, yeah, I lived a good life. We want them to be good human beings. But sometimes we take our kids and their well-being and their happiness and their success and we drag our children onto the altar of our hearts and we say, this is the most important thing. This will determine whether or not My life was meaningful. And inadvertently, without realizing it, we begin to worship our children's happiness, their health, their success. And this begins to alter the way that we interact with our kids. We may respond by wanting to placate their every desires, making them happy. Hey, their friends all have this, so we want to make sure they have it because we don't want them to be disappointed. We don't want them to be different from anybody else. So we want to make sure they have everything. Or, more often than not, sometimes, I I look at myself in this, we end up riding our children because we expect them to be good human beings and we want to press into them the way that they should act. So we become stringent upon them and we become heavy-handed with them because, dang it, they represent us. And so they need to represent us well. And when they don't, our disappointment is evidence. 
And in, without realizing it, when we begin to put the weight of our worship upon our children and their success and their happiness, we end up warping our kids. Not only do we suffocate them with our expectations and our needs for them to be, to fit what we want, whether happy or good, but we also end up choking out our relationship with them. And what are we left with? We're left with children that think either the world revolves around them and everybody exists to cater to their whims, or we're left with basket cases who are so burdened down with unrealistic expectations that their parents have placed upon their shoulders that they simply cannot cope with it, and they end up dealing with anxiety and perfectionism the rest of their lives. What parent wants their children to have either of those things? But this is the cost of misdirected worship. When we make their happiness or their success the paramount thing, not only do we take our eyes off of God, it's not that we don't love our children enough, it's that we don't trust and love God enough. And our kids are the ones that suffer for it. And our relationship with our kids suffer for it. But that's not the only way. There are some of us in here who long for a significant other in their life. We've, we've bought into that, the, 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 the words of Dean Martin. You're nobody till somebody loves you, right? And we believe that at our core. That we are incomplete until we have found that sole person to complete us. And some of you got into marriage with somebody expecting that the person that you were partnering with would complete you. You knew, all of, you, knew you had a lot of brokenness in you. And you were expecting that this person that you were going to unite your life with would fix the brokenness in you. Is it important? Is it a good thing to desire to have a spouse? Is it a good thing to desire to have somebody else in our life that we're doing life with? Absolutely, that's not a bad thing. But when we drag that desire into the center of our lives, and put it on the, the, the center of our heart and say, this is what will determine whether I have a significant, meaningful, good life, we heap a bunch of expectations onto the shoulders of an imperfect person. And they will let you down. They will disappoint you. Because there is no way that another sinful human being could possibly complete you. There is no way that another sinful person could possibly heal you of what is broken inside. If anything, what they're going to end up doing is they're going to expose your brokenness. They're going to friction rub up against your trigger points, and you're going to expose theirs. The reality is, and I will remind you, that what makes you complete, you don't need another person to make you complete. You are complete. Because he has made you complete. If there's only one person in all of the universe that can heal you, and it is not somebody you'll find on Match.com, it is not the person that you have covenanted your life with for better or for worse. Your spouse cannot complete you. Your spouse cannot heal you. Your spouse is another imperfect person that is stumbling through this life, and thankfully you found one another to stumble together. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to them to minister to all of that, you're going to be disappointed and they're going to be frustrated because all of your expectations are going to be frustrated. 
No human being can bear that weight. Do you know the number one reason people give today for why they get divorced? Irreconcilable differences. I got news for you. Every single relationship has irreconcilable differences. Every single one. It is by the grace of God that we make it through each day. If you have placed your spouse or you have placed the image of who you want your spouse to be, and I know he looks like Jason Moama or whatever the guy's name is, right? Whatever. Like, or, or, or Thor or whatever. Like, whoever the person is in your mind that you think, this is who would complete me, this is who would make me happy. Do yourself and your future spouse a favor and remove them from the throne so that God can take his rightful seat back. Then you can actually embrace the person that God brings you as opposed to ripping that person up because they don't match the picture you have in your mind. Rip the picture up so you can embrace the person. Or maybe... I mean, so, so if we bring our kids from the periphery and we place them on the altar, we end up warping them and we, we suffocate our relationship with them. If we bring our spouse or the, the desire for a spouse onto the throne of our hearts, it ends up placing impossible expectations on their shoulders and they're going to warp under the weight of that. Maybe for you, your expectation is, I just, I want to be healthy. I want to live a good, long life. And I, I, I want to look at, I mean, we live in a very superficial environment. We live in an environment where you are reminded every day that you don't measure up or that you need to look a certain way and you need to act a certain way. And some of us are getting into that age where we're reminded of our own mortality. And just trying to be in shape and trying to be healthy is such a huge thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to desire to be healthy, but if you take your desire for health and looking good and you drag it to the center of your life and you place it on the altar and you make that your everything, man, does it warp quickly. I'll be the first to admit, when I was, when I was a freshman in college, I was 280 pounds. I played water polo. I floated really, really well. <laughs> Me and a Speedo was like a Bartlett pair with a rubber band wrapped around it. There's your image for the day. Anyway, I'm sorry, remove the image from your mind. Um, I quit playing water polo at least collegiately my freshman year because at the end of the day it had become a job and not a sport and it wasn't fun anymore. And I remember, I remember somebody right around that time going, hey, you know who you remind me of? I go, who? Go, a young Chris Farley. This is right around the time that Chris Farley, who um, had died. And so it was kind of the wake-up call for me, like, I need to do something drastic. So suddenly, being in shape took on a whole new meaning for me, and I dragged it from the periphery into the middle, and it was a slow going. It was, I, I slowly started saying, this is more important, this is more important, this is more important, and it slowly started going from a good thing that I, I pursued to becoming the ultimate thing. And it as it got closer to the throne of my heart, it began to warp everything around me. It began to change every single day in how I spent it. It changed the way I thought. It changed the way that I looked at food, which had been my idol up to that point. Food was my consolation. And all of a sudden now exercise and, and being in shape became the fuel that, that kind of encouraged me to keep going. 
people would invite me to go and hang out, and I would say, no, I can't, I can't hang out tonight because they were going to go get pizza, and I was not about to eat that stuff. Instead, I would go to the gym. I even began to chew on food and then spit it out, which is not, you know, bulimia is not simply something that young girls deal with always. That was something that for a period of time was something I dealt with because it became my everything. Being a certain way, looking a certain way, being healthy was everything. Now, thankfully, God began to identify that this had become too central in my life, and he removed it. And today, I will tell you that it's not that big of a deal to me. Yes, I try to stay healthy. I try to stay active. But over the, over the course of COVID, when I put on 20 pounds, it didn't define me anymore. It wasn't like the end of life anymore. My identity was not shaken because I no longer could count even one ab anywhere, right? Like, it didn't matter anymore. And, and the best part is, I'm more buoyant now than I ever was. I can body surf so much easier, right, Dee? Like, it's easier to paddle into waves. The point I'm trying to make is that anything, if it's good, but it's placed on the throne of your heart, anything other than God will warp under the weight of your worship. It will not only affect your relationship with God, but it will affect your relationship with that thing. And at that point, the question is, well, is it, is it something that we even want anymore? In fact, would it be the most loving thing for our Father God to protect us from the very things that we want? I think of something that Jesus said um, in Luke chapter 11. Why don't you turn there with me? Jesus is teaching about prayer in Luke chapter 11. And in the midst of talking about the fact that he is a God who loves us and you can, you can run to him, you can ask, seek, and knock. You know, if you ask, it'll be given to you. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you knock, the door will be open to you because he loves you. And then these words, he speaks on the heels of that. He said, which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give them a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he basically points to us and he says, hey, you guys understand the heart of a father. You understand that as a father... Our kids ask for lots of things, things that they want, good things. But as a parent, you begin to recognize, you know what, some of the things you're asking for aren't good. I know that you would like to have ice cream every meal of the day. That's not going to ultimately be healthy for you. Or my kids, both. Hey, we really want an electric bike. All our friends have e-bikes. Can we have an e-bike? And I'm, Why won't you give us an e-bike, Dad? Don't you love us? Yes, I love you, which is why I won't give you an e-bike. Because those things are motorcycles that pretend to be bicycles, and they're just a high-speed accident waiting to happen. As unfortunately, and I wrote those words the same day, about an hour before Cooper was in his accident. It's like, dang it, I didn't want to have an illustration that was proven true. I love you too much to give you the very thing you're asking for, because I love you. 
and I care about you. And in the same way, I imagine our Father looks at us and the things that we're asking for. I really need that promotion. I really want that job. And he knows that on the surface, we're like, we're, we're adamant that we just want that because that will feel good to get it and we'll be able to make more money for our family. But he sees beneath the surface and he recognizes that deep down, we're wanting that for the wrong reasons. We're wanting that promotion because it will somehow communicate to us that we're enough or it will somehow complete us in a way that we're not allowing him to complete us. Or God, I just want a significant other to complete me and he's saying, hey, you are complete. You don't need another person. Yes, you need community. You were created to be in community, but you don't need a significant other to be complete. You are somebody because this somebody loves you. What good father who knows that his children are asking for things that will ultimately hurt them would give them the very thing that will cause harm to them? Could it be that our father God loves us best when he says no? Now, granted, there are times when our father says no and we don't like that answer. My kids don't like it when I say no. Sometimes they go sneak ice cream. Sometimes when our father says no to us, we say, nope, where there is no door, I'm going to drive my car through the wall and I'm going to make a door. And sometimes we can take hold of the things that he has told us don't take hold of that. And we might think, hey, we got it, I got the raise. Hey, I'm in a relationship, finally I've arrived. And we might think that's his grace, but I would suggest to you that when we take hold of something he doesn't want for us and he lets us have it, that's not his grace. That's his judgment. You don't believe me? Just read Romans chapter 1. Watch the downward spiral into depravity that he describes. As we human beings who tend to worship things and worship ourselves and worship the very things that he says don't touch and we say, no, we want them. Sometimes he gives us over to those things so that we can see just how empty and lifeless and meaningless they really are. But that's not his grace. That's his judgment. God's grace is when he lovingly but firmly tells us no. And when we reach for it, he says no. And when we whine and complain, he silently endures it because he loves us enough that his no is no. I would suspect that as I share this this morning, there are some things in your life that, that you have carried in here that are flirting with or are already sitting on the throne where God rightfully belongs. You may not be aware of it. But there might be things in your life, good things, things that matter greatly, not just to you, but good things in this world. There might be things that have begun to move to the center of your life and have become good things that have become ultimate things. And now, if that doesn't happen, your entire worldview is thrown out of whack. And this morning, the question that we are all left with is, well, what do we do with this? I'm guilty. There are things. 
If I'm really honest, I love to read. I love to read. And I'm not talking theology books as I'm holier than thou. I love to read science fiction. That's something that I find great joy in. It's something I spend a lot of time doing. Something I sacrifice sleep to do. It's something I sacrifice time being present with my family to do. It's something I sacrifice other good things like watching television to do. Sometimes it's something that I sacrifice even spending quiet time in the morning to do because I, I, my, I'm, I'm at the part in my book that I'm really excited about and I pick that up as opposed to my Bible. Just being honest here so that we can be honest with ourselves. I recognize that that is one of those things that has moved from the periphery. It's not a bad thing. Wanting to read is a great thing. It's where my vocabulary comes from. But sometimes it comes too central in my life and it becomes something that I rely upon to cope. And this morning, I recognize that's one of the things that I need to lay down. I don't know what that looks like right now. But here's what I would like us to do. I would like us, for just a moment, to take your hands and to make a fist. And I want you for a moment to consider that your fist symbolizes your heart. And there are certain things that you're holding on to in your heart, desires, expectations, that have gone from being things you want to things you need and, and things you would almost demand of God. Because this is the thing that if I don't get this thing, if I don't have this thing, life won't be life, won't be the kind of life I want. And I'm just going to ask us that we take a couple of moments to silently consider what are the things in your world, the good things that you have allowed to become central things that you're gripping onto. Is it a relationship? Is it something to do with your career? Is it perhaps a house? Is it an expectation of what your life will look like? Is it a form of entertainment? or some other consolation that you run to when life gets a little bit out of whack. Just take a couple of moments, and I want you to prayerfully invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what it is that you have inadvertently placed on the altar of your heart a good thing that has become an ultimate thing and therefore has become an idol in your life. Let's just take a moment to prayerfully consider that.
And I know for some of you that probably felt like an hour, and for others of you it felt like just a moment. But now as we go into a time of response, I'm going to invite you. When you're ready, and when you mean it, to open your palms up as if you are unclenching your heart from around whatever it is that you've been holding on to and offering it up to him, not because it doesn't matter, but because it matters so much that it is threatening to become a rival God that competes with him for your worship and your attention and your trust and your devotion. Not because this is a bad thing, but because this has become such an ultimate thing that in a way that you're saying, God, I trust you more than I trust this. I need you more than I need this. And this morning, I'm simply submitting it to you and saying, God, help yourself to this. If you want to give it to me, then I will receive it gratefully. But if you want to remove it from my palms because that is not what you want and in your grace you're telling me no because you have something different you want to give me, so be it. I trust you. I need you more than I trust this and need this. That is our response today as we go into this time of worship together. Father God, give us the courage to not only identify, but to lay down the good things that have become idols in our life so that we, you can retake your rightful place on the throne of our hearts and so that we can be free to worship you in the midst of those good things, whatever it is you want us to have. Help yourself to our life, Jesus, in your holy name. wish to stand with us, please feel free to do so. i 
And I says I've only got a few months left. It's like a bitter pill I'm swallowing and I can barely take a breath. 
When addiction steals my baby girl, there's nothing I can do. My only hope is to trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. Cause in, in the, the eye, eye of the storm, turned it off. That's awesome. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that as I was just kind of spending that time with my palms open, thinking about the things that are there, and I, I will be honest with you, I'm not going to tell you what was there, but so many of the things that I began to identify that I clench in my palms are things that I run to for consolation. When the world gets overwhelming, when my kids don't obey everything I want them to do, when they act like they're individuals as opposed to little, you know, it's like, that's exactly what I want. When they cry in the middle of the pastor's part. <laughs> when life doesn't look the way that we want. We run to things for consolation. And a lot of times those are the things that become the idols in our life. Because what is an idol but something that we look to, to address something that we fear? We run to social media because we fear insignificance and we just want somebody to notice and care about us and give us the thumbs up. We run to food because we just feel out of control or alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or pornography because it's whatever it is to console ourselves. 
We run to a relationship when we're out of one relationship because we just need somebody to tell us you're okay. And as I was kind of holding my palms open, I felt like God would say, hey, the reason I want you to let go of these things is so that I can put my hand in your hand and I, we can hold hands as we go through life, as you walk through this sin-scarred world and the very moment and the very time that I have placed you in, in the sphere of influence I've placed you, I just want you to be able to hold my hand so that when you stumble, I'm there to hold you up. And when the rain is going crazy, I can guide you to shelter or I can be the shelter. And when there is a need that is beyond your ability to address, it is my power. It is me that ultimately you bring into every conversation and that you bring to Cooper's parents as they are overwhelmed that their baby is hurt. Eric, you can't save them. Only I can. So hold my hand along the broken path Hold my hand when we come to the green pasture and I force you to lie down in it so that you can rest and be restored. At work, hold my hand. Trust me. Trust me to make the sale. You don't have to compromise. Trust me in your relationships. Trust me in your desire for what the future will look like. Trust me enough to follow my lead, even if it doesn't lead to where you expected. And trust me wherever you find yourself, because you are not alone. I am with you. I love you. So my family, as you leave this place today, know that you don't walk out alone. Church isn't ending. You're the church. This is just the box we gather in for an hour and a half on every Sunday. You're the church. You're holding on to God's hand. You've been able to lay down some of these things that you've been gripping so that you can grab hold of his hand. Hold his hand tightly as you go throughout your day, as you interact with your family, as you interact with the, the neighbor that's been bugging you, as you interact with your kids. And throughout this week, as you go about the things that he has given you to do, know that you do not go alone. You are a priest set apart by him, empowered by his holy presence, and wherever you go, you carry him with you. If there are things that you've carried in that you want us to carry with you, you can just write down prayer requests on the connection cards in front of you, or you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. You can drop those in the white boxes in the back. But my family, as you go, know that you don't go alone. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful week. In the eye of the storm Your love surrounds me